This episode is brought to you by Happy Mess. Happy Mess? The kids' art place? Yeah, they do art classes and sensory play and after-school programs and in-school classes and birthday parties and camps. And adult events. Buy tickets to our next paint night or book your own for your next occasion or staff party. Check it out at www.happymess.net. What's www? World Wide Web. This episode is brought to you by ServiceMaster Sea to Sky. A home is more than just a house and an office is more than just a place to work. ServiceMaster is here to offer home and business services when you need them the most. ServiceMaster handles water, flood, fire, and reconstruction services. We take on jobs big and small. There's no project we haven't seen before. ServiceMaster, the complete customer experience. Call us at 604-938-0822 or on the web, smctosky.com. That's smctosky.com. ServiceMaster Sea to Sky, restoring peace of mind. This is the Sea to Sky podcast, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea Sky Podcast. We are covering the Squamish local elections, and uh, I'm here with Stephen Fryer and our guest, Chris Bettengill, up for re-election, going back into the fire. Glutton for punishment. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. Expound on that. Why Why do you love it so much? Why Why put yourself through another four years of fun? Uh, it, it's just so important, I think, what we're doing. Uh, there's obvious to everyone there's such big issues we're facing and i'm not someone to sit on the sidelines uh i i can't help myself i have to be involved i need to be part of those solutions is it is it a feeling that there's a lot unfinished from the last four years for now for you to keep going is there that that need to i need to get this done and what issues do you think like need to get done like i need to be there for this I'm not so sure that it's I need to get it done because some of these are, are big issues. I don't know that you get them done. It's There's a community like ours that's growing so much. There's just going to be big issues all the time. And, and I'm at a point where I, I don't want to be on the sidelines. I want to be part of, like I said, uh, making it better and, and finding good solutions to it and not, you know, not some of the simplistic uh, um, real solutions. So what issues are we talking about then? What are those prevailing big issues that you've been hearing and that you've been working on and you find yourself in right now? I think housing and affordability is is probably the biggest one. And it's it's not a Squamish thing. It's a Canada thing, maybe a North America thing, maybe a worldwide thing right now. You know, we are so incredibly fortunate here. You look around at, at this place we live in and we're sort of like you were saying early earlier, we're, we're just so really lucky, but a lot of people are not, keeping up or not we're not bringing them along with us that upsets me I, I think we need to find a bit more of a balance it's the way our economy is set up that the people with the most money they get to choose where to live and everyone else well you kind of take what you get and and I just sort of at a fundamental of I'm uncomfortable with that it's pretty challenging for us to solve that at a municipal level but I think we can make it better a little bit well, how do we make it better? Is it through housing committee? Uh, how, how's that working? Um, when we're talking about Airbnbs, uh, short-term rentals, increasing the rental pool. I mean, it, what what kind of um, solutions have you been looking at the last four years and what you're hoping to tackle on the next four years? The housing authority is a big one. I'm pretty proud that we finally got that off the ground. And, you know, everyone talks about Whistler's the model. It's not perfect, but they've also had decades <laughs> to get theirs going. And, and so we're just getting rolling now. But I don't want to see us lose any momentum there. We need to pick up 
speed, I think. And then it's some of the other discussions we're having around um, where we develop, how we develop. I'm interested in, in keeping our infrastructure costs down. So ratio of infrastructure to taxpayers. I think people would rather spend money on a Brendan Park or a library than sewer pipes and water mains. I mean, we absolutely need all of that. But the more sewer and water we need per taxpayer, the harder it is to do a Brenham Park and an ice rink. And and so I think that part of the discussion I often hear missing. And, and so it's pieces like that that help keep the cost of living a little bit lower for people. And so it's, it's little small things like that. There's definitely a lot of sewer and piping downtown because the, the densification downtown has been a big issue. A lot of people have been bringing up the the building and, and if we're doing it correctly um, and they're all six stories tall and uh, they only have one parking spot per unit. Have you looked at that and said, you know what, maybe we should slow down densification or is it the rate is where you think it should be? How do you see the densification issue and the parking issue downtown? One of the reasons or one of the benefits of densification and, and there's pros and cons, but we're not adding a lot of sewer. Like they're using the existing sewer and the existing road. So it's a whole bunch more taxpayers without new infrastructure. And so then that extra tax base can go into Brennan Park and that sort of thing. Whereas if we sprawl out into Greenfield, it is brand new sewers, brand new roads. There's the replacement cost, the maintenance cost, the initial capital cost. And that sucks up a lot of money and impacts the whole tax base. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, over the last few years that that has really helped moderate tax increases. If, if we hadn't had that sort of dense infill growth, our taxes would have gone up a lot more. People don't talk about that a lot, but that's important. I think in terms of parking, I think I've been misquoted a, a little bit, and, and uh, but I also have some strong perspectives on it as well. So uh, maybe made myself an easy target. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, lessons I, learned, lessons, yeah, learned. things, things that happen. Right? Yeah. yeah, I do bristle a bit given we know we need to move away from vehicles. You know, our survival depends on it and we need to move quickly. But I also understand we can't snap our fingers and get there tomorrow. So I, I try and push and I, I push and poke and prod on council, but I'm not unrealistic. Uh, but it's it's where are we putting public money versus private money? Where are we allowing private money? So we had a staff report a couple months ago analyzing the the parking and existing stratus downtown and and some of them are full but apparently a number of them are are quite empty in the evening and our zoning bylaw just forces them to keep it that way but if there are stratas where the parking isn't being used let's open that up now uh, for for public parking paid public parking whatever it is and the strata can use that to keep their strata fees down but we get spots right now with existing infrastructure it's not costing the taxpayer any money and that's right there right in the downtown and so that's the sort of thing i'd like to look at i think we've had a lot of good feedback that uh, we need to be reserving more spaces for uh, more accessible spaces thinking about uh, enforcement for delivery vehicles so delivery vehicles aren't constantly taking up spaces the whole medical clinic issue is is a challenging one there's a whole thing that province needs to deal with but in the short term and with the public pain points I, I think maybe we do need to look at reserved spaces around some of the medical centers so I think there's some things like that intelligent demand-based pricing so it's not like it's always this amount of money but if there's a high demand maybe the price goes up a little bit so managing more what we have i think 
Uh, some people are excited about a parkade downtown. When I look at where's the available land and so on, I'm not sure that's a great idea. I think outside of town, there's cheaper and more available land. And so targeting tourists and that sort of thing, maybe there's park area there and maybe it can accommodate boats and so on. And then there's shuttles to downtown and, and maybe that's more tourist focused. And, and I think when there's a the conversation, people always say there's not enough parking. If you drill down with them and say, well, really, what is the issue here? What usually comes out to is well I need to go to the post office or or this shop or that shop and I can't find a spot right there when I want to go I have to drive around and eventually I'll find something four blocks away and so for me that's where we our focus needs to be because that's what the pain point is and putting a parkade four blocks away where you have to go up three stories and then you're paying 20 bucks there's more parking spots but you're not actually solving the problem that people are having so I want to make sure that as we're thinking about challenges we're actually thinking about that yeah, I mean, the, the, I would say for a parkade, it would be more for the staff of the businesses. So so staff is not taking up valuable parking spaces around the businesses that they can park in a parkade uh, and walk to the business. So they're not blocking up the street or having to move their car every two hours because they have nowhere else to put their vehicles because they have to drive into town. Now, you could alleviate that, obviously, by increasing transit, getting 15 minute uh, of cycles through. But I mean, until that happens and, and going after the province, I mean, people need to park their cars. So there is a lot of views downtown and there's a lot more buildings being built and there's a lot of traffic, you know, being funneled downtown for that reason as well that you mentioned about taxes. The infrastructure is already there. You're getting a stronger tax base so we don't burden ourselves with higher taxes, which is still happening, by the way. We'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think, um, you know, there's nothing in our zoning really that that's stopping the private sector from putting in a parkade or for businesses, you know, say I want to redevelop my site and put in more parking. And, and so the challenge I have is the sort of expectation is that the public is meant to take on these big capital costs and you know why isn't the private sector doing it if, if it was profitable I think they would and so it seems to me right now the ask is that the taxpayer take on this big new tax burden to help private business at a time when the taxpayer really wants to upgrade Brennan Park and a library and so on and so uh, that's why I th I would prefer to find other solutions that doesn't put that parkade burden on the taxpayer well we talk about revenue streams Right, you're talking about revenue streams with respect to these these big capital costs for things, big shiny things, and some of them aren't as shiny. Some of them is this park eight. What are some of the out of out of the box thinking that council can do to to broach some of these subjects and and define the funding with respect to to these projects that um, there's obviously a deficit when it comes to money in versus money out. Well, I think one of the things that we have been doing is you know where grants are available. We spent a lot of time chasing those and and having the the meetings with ministers to 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 pitch our you know this is why we need this grant um and i think a lot of the grants right now because of the climate crisis they're focused on sustainability and that so instead of just saying oh hey we want to do this with brennan park we're looking at how do we put the sustainability lens on it which we want to do anyways because of our climate action plan but in finding grants we're making sure that we're paying attention to what are the the criteria for these grants and adjusting things to make that happen and where we've got the resource facilities master plan which maps out because we've got like you know it's 150 170 some odd million dollars in infrastructure deficit we don't have the the debt room for that so we've actually mapped out the plan of okay what can we do with debt 
How do we, you know, do we need to dispose of land? Uh, how do we make this work? You know, there's that big conversation around municipal hall, you know, lease versus buy. My personal preference very much would be to buy it. But when you look at the impact that has on our debt ceiling, and then that pushes out the library in Brenham Park much further. And so maybe we do try and lease a, a, a minimal space for the shorter term for municipal hall so that we have more room in our debt ceiling to get Brennan Park moved forward quicker. So we're, we're trying to look at all these pieces and, and how do we fit them all together. There has been uh, staff looking at sponsorship and that sort of thing, and that's often held out as the sort of magic solution. But I think when it gets right down to it, people aren't necessarily willing to just build a Brennan Park to put their name on it. <laughs> so there's still sort of interest in that and, you know, community foundation. So community fundraising, I think all those are options. But what I've seen so far is people throw those out as like sort of wonderful ideas. But when you get down to, okay, let's actually make it happen. The the money isn't always there. So we're trying to be very practical and, and, and we've mapped out a plan on how to get it done. Now, does that involve higher CACs? One big complaint that people have said that we're not getting enough from our developers uh, via CACs. Yeah, so we're updating the CIC policy right now uh, and looking for more from development. Uh, it'll be interesting to see with the inflation going up and interest rates going up, uh, what happens to the economy, because that may make it more difficult. You know, right now with the political climate and so on, I think we can afford to push really hard on CACs to the point where some developers will say, no, I just can't do it. But that could change pretty quickly. And so we'll see. I think at this time, our, um, you know, we're wanting to go from 10% to 15% affordable units as part of uh, a rezoning. So we'll be having, or the next council, we'll, we'll have that discussion about what we want the final policy update to look at. It's been a while since that's been updated, but it probably should be updated every every few years as the markets change. I would say uh, we have been getting a lot from CACs. One of the challenges is, you know, on council, you really have to think long term. Most of the development that, that we're seeing, very little of it was approved by our council. It's almost all approved by the last council. And the next council that comes in, they're going to see <laughs> what we've approved. And so there's this huge lag. And so it's a little bit frustrating where we've actually secured a whole lot of affordable rental units, but none of it's built yet. So it, it's all on paper. It's guaranteed. And those, you know, as soon as those buildings get built, we get them. But there's that delay. And, and we have had, because of the housing crisis, we've been really focused on getting affordable units, getting daycare space, getting some affordable units reserved for daycare workers, which means then there's less CAC money available for Brennan Park. And, and so we're making these really hard choices. And, and I think our my priority and council's priority has been a little more towards the affordable units and daycare than some of the Brennan Park pieces. And, you know, so, so we'll look to get a little bit more out of CACs, but, you know, looking around the province and, and I don't think we're actually out of line in terms of what we're capturing from development. It comes down to needs and wants and, and the wants are always shinier than the needs. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's getting that message out there that, you know, we're, we're trying to accomplish most of the needs that we, we require, not necessarily the wants, but I mean, you did get some work done. Uh, you did get something passed for Brennan Park. You want to get into the, a little bit of detail on how that worked out? Like the money that's coming in to improve Brennan Park? Yeah, so we got, uh, I guess it's $11.7 million from the, the feds for some uh, grants uh, to improve uh, change rooms and some of the other areas. Uh, some of it is climate related, so we're going to make the building a lot more energy efficient, which will save operational costs, meet some of our climate goals. But this is where an example of where tailoring 
our grant applications to what grants are available has helped us get that grant and then constantly lobbying the province uh, or the feds actually in this case. And we have, we're just, I think it's uh, another 16 million clean BC grant that we're uh, fairly optimistic about, but I guess we'll find out about that in the first half of next year. So this is a place where it can, uh, I guess, compliment the, or thank the province and the feds for, for coming through. Well, we'll, Remains to be seen about the province, but but I'm I'm hopeful there. It seems like the lobbying in the province has been a lot of the choke point with a lot of the funding in terms of uh, Brendan Park Transit. When looking back at it, could you have done more to lobby or no? I think I think that the challenge is just that there's so much demand, and the province is trying to keep their tax rates low and everything, and so and they're you know effectively downloading services. And so it's just a matter of, of, of making that case. I, what I have seen at, like at the last UBCM or other conferences, Squamish has called out for, you know, our code of conduct policy and called out, uh, recognized, I should say, not called out, but recognized for the code of conduct policy. Um, we were instrumental in uh, Minister Robinson thanked Mayor Elliott for helping to identify the issues, why we needed to expand the, the vacancy tax beyond just Vancouver and how that's impacting things here. And so that's a change which has happened because of, of our, our lobbying. So far, a little more frustrating in terms of regional transit. Um, we've come together with the whole region, with the First Nations saying, hey, we want to work together. Provincial law precludes us from from working as a, as a commission. That's not the right term, but working together and then getting the funding. So we're constantly you know, with First Nations, with with everyone, we've we've come to the province. Instead and, of you being able to lobby together, you have to individually lobby. No, we're we're lobbying together, but in terms of setting up a body to so there's the whole money piece, which we're still hammering on, but there's an additional obstacle, which is the legislative ability for First Nations to sit as part of the group when it has the money, when it's formed to help plan the regional transit. So that's another piece that we're trying to say, hey, we need both these pieces in place to make regional transit work here. I'm not really sure what the province is thinking about regional transit. It's it's a little bit frustrating, to be honest, that one. Well, it's all about the green piece. I mean, they're, they're willing to dump money into making things like climate acceptable and, and trying to make, turn things more green. Regional transit follows into that plan. Right. And it also helps keep people moving and keeps the economy moving. So this transit talk is not new. We've been talking about this for years. I think when I, when I interviewed you four years ago, when you were first running, this was a big piece as well as transit. I'm hearing from all the candidates that the choke point is always at the province. And just what can we do differently to, to convince the province that this is needed? Like, Does it go beyond you or should people get up and start throwing picket signs? Like, how does this work? I, I think picket signs might be useful. I, I think it is a lot more push to the province. I, I think this government has done some good things, but as an NDP government, it seems that they're pushing towards, a, in my opinion, a privatization of healthcare and some of the transit, especially at the regional level and some of these things. And so it's, it's a little bit hard to understand where their head is at. They're talking about the climate piece and that's a nut we, we just haven't cracked yet. And um, But it's the pressure has been relentless from us on that. I'd like to speak to the economic diversification and the tax base. I mean, we know here in Squamish, our residential taxation accounts for roughly about 60% of our budget, whereas the provincial average is around 48. Yeah, 48%. What are we doing to attract new business um, in the district of Squamish to help alleviate the taxation? And how do we diversify our economy, which right now our industry is tourism and development? Well, uh, and I haven't 
haven't uh, looked recently at, at the numbers, but I think we are seeing our, our, our economy diversify. I think companies like Seven Mesh is an example. The company I work for, uh, five of us at the start of last election, we're 120 people now. Now, um, it's probably 20 to 30 of us in Squamish and the rest are in the U.S. and, and all over. Uh, and, and we're we're in tech, and so there's there's more and more companies like that um, in in the green tech space. There's you know carbon engineering and uh, is it Rotolip? I can't remember their exact name, but there, there's a few others. There's combustion solutions, and and so there are other definitely other companies here and growing. And I think that the obstacle is comes back to the housing and affordability. Uh, whether it's tourism or these other, you know, companies that are hiring engineers and stuff, it's hard for people to be able to afford to live here, sort of in the lower mainland. But it's that workforce and housing affordability piece, which is the probably the main obstacle right now to business growth. And then if you look at putting up property taxes and rented residential property taxes, are you helping with that situation or not? It's, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it really is interconnected, right? So we're talking to the development piece and we talk to economic uh, diversification and trying to attract new. You're talking to, to businesses that are here already, but what do we do or what can we do to attract those those new businesses, you know, approaching the, the affordability piece and, and the housing piece? Yeah, right now, uh, you know, I think our economic development department has done a, a good job of attracting business. And, and I don't know that, like, businesses want to be here. It's, as we've seen, especially the downtown pickup, more restaurants come. So some of that quality of life things that attracts people, uh, employees, has reached a threshold where, where, where it is attractive. And it really is, I think, solving that, that housing affordability piece and making sure that as we're zoning, we're zoning for the sorts of places that people can afford to live in that they want to live in. And there's a bit of a balance and, and compromise there. And so that that's sort of a real focus in, in a lot of our zoning work right now. And, and one of the things that I'm always uh, have bothered staff a lot about uh, is, okay, this new building we're proposing, where are those people going to work or this commercial space? Where are they going to live? How close is it? Can they walk? Or are we going to make them get into a car? And do the salaries of the commercial space and the residential space, when it's both, do they match or is it like a complete mismatch? Like, how do we get it so that you're living close to where you work? And so these are some of the sorts of things which makes it easier for people to live here and work here where they're living. It's also finding the space. I mean, because if you want to push tourism, that means we need beds and that means we need to build hotels. And if we need like affordable housing, that means we need to build more housing so we can get employees to come in here and help build our businesses. And then we want to build industry. Um, so where do we build the industry? Are we talking about BC rail yards? Um, where, where can we build? Is, or do we need to be collaborating with Squamish Nation to get more lands? Or where do you want to see the development go? There's definitely some opportunity in the BC rail yards. Uh, I, I don't think BC rail is managing it well, in, in my opinion. And and so there's, you know, we're definitely pushing the government on on finding some solutions there and, and working closely with Squamish Nation on that. I think one of the exciting things of the the Chikai fan uh, develop and mitigation is it doesn't just open that up for residential development. It allows for a whole bunch of residential or sorry industrial opportunity. So I, I think that's going to be a place where where we look as well. And then Squamish Nation does have Site B and and some of their lands, which may may be where we see a lot more of the or maybe an opportunity for some industrial uses. 
tourism is a big part. Uh, I would suggest a lot of our eggs are in that basket right now. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, and I, I want to expand upon it because um, I think the big thing is is that there is a bed space issue here to support that sector. We had a national slow pitch championship, wanted to come to Squamish. There wasn't enough bed spaces for them to hold that tournament here locally. I guess my question is, how do we create more bed spaces? What's your stance on Airbnbs? Because over this last term, obviously restrictions have been put in place with respect to people's private homes and Airbnbs really isn't quantifiable, whether it's actually had a positive impact on the actual long-term rental market. Where's your thoughts on that? Tourism is a critical part of our economy, but if you look at our our target sectors versus core sectors, it is a sort of a core sector. So, you know, it, it's there, it's providing a huge amount of value and it's important, but it is not our focus for growth right now. It's rec tech and green tech is, is our, our target sectors for growth. So just to, to set that context, in terms of uh, short-term rentals and that that sort of thing, yeah, I think there is some work being done to to figure out how to get some more hotels here. And, and tourism Squamish is obviously a big big part of that. I guess I I, I sort of um, on the fence on STRs. I I did not support the direction we went originally, and so I I was more supportive of keeping STRs more open. Part of my thinking there is, you know, I guess I what I say is, is an STR. There's there's almost almost more of a community feel to it when it's like it's if it's one thing where you have a house and the the landlord lives somewhere else in another country and they're just renting it to whoever. That's not the ideal. But if you have someone with an accessory dwelling unit in their backyard and they're sort of interacting with the person, they're doing all the work, and you know that for me becomes a lot more appealing. It really I think attaches a visitor to the community in, in a in a positive way um, that is more appealing to me than the idea of, of a big hotel. You know, I share the concern I, and I, I acknowledge it hasn't been well quantified. You know, what percentage of units have returned to the long term market? We we don't know for sure. Um, we are assuming that that some have because of economic necessity, but that's one reason why we would restrict it. I, I think the other reason that's made me a little more supportive more recently of the direction we ended up going, even though I didn't originally support it, is when you can do a short-term rental, then you can afford a much bigger mortgage and a, and a bank will consider that. And so then that pushes up the housing prices of all the homes because now theoretically any home you could put this in and so that, that gets bundled into the price. And, and so I think that... I'm concerned that the ability to have STRs generally pushes up all the housing prices is, is sort of my concern. Now, having said all that, I believe we're having a report come to us, which is going to speak to a need for more enforcement. I think there's been some concern for the people that are doing it legitimately. They're playing by all the rules and other people still aren't. And maybe there's not enough enforcement yet there. And so that's something that uh, I hope the next council will look at and, and take seriously. I would definitely be open to opening up a little more. Um, STRs, but I, I'm not sure that I'd be quite comfortable at this point going to a, a just wide open STRs kind of the way, well, it wasn't allowed, but it was unenforced. But I think there's probably going to need to be some level of regulation. It's just the housing market for people is just so tough right now. But the STR model from a visitor experience, incorporating visitors into the community when the host is at the same property at the same time is very appealing to me. Yeah, that's a great answer. I like that. 
It's not taking a side, but yeah. <laughs> it's, a great it's, it's sitting on a fence, but it's, it's a, saying, you know. I, just said, I said I was sitting on a fence on this one. You did, you did, you did duly note that I am sitting on the fence on this one. That's a sitting on a fence answer. Because it, it, is, it is a conundrum. I mean, it is, right? People want the ability to do whatever they want to do with their with their property without government interference. I understand the, the driving it up, but that's not quantifiable. And it's the same thing with returning them to the long term. It's 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 not quantifiable. No one can really say, hey, it's helped us out. In actual fact, you could almost say it's done us worse because they haven't returned. Our vacancy rates still continue to be staggeringly low, right? Like it's just insane. Also, if you look at Tofino, Tofino did the same thing that we enacted and it didn't work for them. It didn't add more units to the long-term rental. It didn't, no. it didn't at all. It didn't work for Tofino. So I, I was surprised that we tried it here, to be honest. But... Um, so we, we've asked you a bunch of questions about what we think is important and what we've been hearing. What have you been hearing that we, you think you should be addressing in the next four years? You know, we haven't talked about the climate crisis, which is kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting how that impacts because before, you know, I used to hear about a, a splash pad. And to be completely honest, my reaction was it just with all the challenges we faced, it seemed just too much of a, a want and a, sort of a nice thing, but not really that important. But seeing the climate crisis and realize there's actually a lot of people that don't have air conditioning. And when it's hot out, it's it's not just a, an enjoyment. It's it's like a, a safety issue. And so that's why now I'm thinking actually a, a splash pad is probably really kind of an important thing. I guess that's just maybe a, a concrete example of how we need to be thinking about climate change. And it's not just solar panels and and windmills and that sort of thing. Uh I think we need to keep our pedal to the metal on that. We've done a fair bit where our community is seen as somewhat of a leader, I would say, in BC, but we're just, none of us are where we need to be. So Where do we need to be? uh, We need to be approaching basically zero emissions by 2050 and and cutting our emissions in half basically by 2030. That's all of us. I'm talking about what can we be doing locally I mean, you ban the plastic bags and, and the straws and you've done a few other initiatives for mm-hmm. the climate. You passed the community action plan. What in that plan can you do you want to add to? So one of the things that we did is a really um, positive low carbon incentive. So that has been really effective at encouraging new builders to uh, not include gas infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure in their new builds. But we've allowed some I think a few loopholes that I would like to close. We haven't brought that and made that incentive available to commercial, industrial, and and larger multifamily buildings. So I would like to take that incentive and bring it there, so we can see a lot more. I think innovation and and greener buildings in that space. We just got a budget, and and council supported it. We'll do a final approval or the next council will do a final approval on the budget, but to expand our, our concierge and, and what that does is help people understand the process and sort of walk them through the process, getting the grants to move to um, heat pumps and so on. So you can bring down your, your home costs, but you have the help. You don't have to sort of manage all the district permits and, and the provincial rules and grants yourself. You have someone holding your hand. So I think expanding in this area too, because we have a, a few more tools to deal with new development, but we've got all this existing development, which is really inefficient. So how do we deal with that? So I think a lot more work in that area. And I've been part of the um, Help Cities Lead group. So it's municipal leaders from across BC uh, lobbying the government for a, a suite of policies 
basically new municipal authorities and some provincial changes to to help us manage uh, existing stock. And so there's some exciting things coming there. Exciting from my perspective, <laughs> like grading, for example, like labeling the efficiency of your home. So then, you know, it'll become part of your real estate listing. And so it's a consideration. Oh, I'm buying this home. It's got a poor rating. It's going to be a lot more expensive to heat. So it'll start putting in those market triggers for people to upgrade their homes and make them more efficient. So there's there's things like that that um, I think we'll see rolling out in the next few years that, that are pretty exciting. You're also um, heavily committed to the arts community. Mm-hmm. I, I know you're, you're a longtime friend of the Arts Council and uh, you know, lots of people in the art community screaming for uh, a theater space, uh, a grander, like a, basically a community arts hub where we can do art, we can do dance, we can do all that sort of stuff. I mean, again, is, is that, uh, where does that fall on the want and need <laughs> sort of scale? And is that something that can be accommodated in the next four years? might be challenging to build that in the next four years, I think. Uh, I will contradict one of my earlier statements where I sort of said staff has been looking at sponsorship and so on for, I was talking more in the rec context, and it that has seemed a tougher slog. It does seem like, and I'm not an expert in this, but from the conversations I've had, it seems like there's a little more opportunity for an endowment for an art center of some sort. So I know the Arts Council has been working on that for, for quite a while, and I have some hope there. We, uh, as we're redoing the Tantalus Fire Hall, we we don't have the money to build anything on top right now, but we are are constructing and designing the lower piece so something can be constructed on top. And some people talk about maybe that's where an art center could be. And I think there's some thought that, oh, maybe with part of the Brenham Park and some revitalization and grants there. I think those are options in, in the want versus need. Maybe that is where we go. Me personally, when I think about what is an arts and arts center and what's the whole experience it, that's the sort of thing that for me it should be downtown so you go to the restaurants you go to the, the play or the the show or whatever and there's the whole experience it's not just that one building that on the other side of town so i would really like to see sort of oceanfront downtown us planning in around that it's tough though because yeah do you choose you know when you're competing for brennan park and a library and, and some of these other things we had in our last budget survey where people wanted to cut versus spend and so on i was actually quite disappointed that arts scored lower than i would thought would have thought it would i've seen a real explosion in arts you know i can't prove this my my gut feeling is that there's some misunderstanding or not a full realization of what the arts includes. And, and so maybe with a bit better understanding of, of everything it involves, people might have rated it higher. But, um, you know, our, our community historically has been an athletic sort of outdoor rec community. Arts have been historically underfunded. And, and I think that mindset is really starting to shift. And, and with the Mayor's Youth Council, you talk to the kids. There are a number who say, like, I don't want a mountain bike. That's just not my thing. And so there are, I think, more youth who want other options. And so I think that change is really happening. But I don't know if we're quite there yet at a political level where we could or would say, well, you know, we're going to push off Brennan Park a while. We're going to do an art center instead. I I think there may have to be a little bit of of compromise and figuring out, you know, can we improve um, at uh, Eagle Eye Theater? Are there improvements we could make there? Are there... Could we do sort of sort of a multi-use, multi-purpose space at Brennan Park as part of the revitalization? That's maybe not the ideal art center, but it's something that'll get us through until we get something better. I I, I kind of feel like that's where we are right now. 
realistically. So now we're going to kick off our rapid fire portion of the interview where we ask uh, the, the candidates quick questions and just sort of get a shorter answer, just so to be concise on certain issues. Uh, one is densification downtown. You're, you're kind of okay with what we're going with or you want to slow it down? Uh, I think it's the wrong question. I, I think it's livability. So it's, it's how do we make this space more livable? Uh, density can be done terribly. It can be done well. And, and so it's, it's how does it integrate with the rest of the community? And so for me, that is, you know, trees and benches and, and parks, but, but also just sort of like little small places where people can gather together, where they're out of the wind, out of the rain. So you're interacting with people where it's not just all cement and pavement and people are in their individual cars and no one interacts and you're, you're sort of isolated, even though you're all crammed together. It's about how do we make this a space where we're out and together and interacting and it's where you want to be that I think is the more important piece to, to focus on. And there's an, a, a relationship to density there, but I think um, just sort of counting the number of people per square foot doesn't get us to what we really want. Obviously access into the downtown is, is, is an issue. Where, where are we standing on that? Is that we're looking closer to a solution to, to having a second way in because right now with all the density and all the cars, when a train goes by at five fifteen, yeah, not fun trying to get out of town. Yeah, so if, if people watched, which I'm sure everyone did, our discussions about uh, Hunter Place, there's a fair bit of discussion about making sure that the, the Pemberton Bridge will interact with that well. The Laurelwood intersection, uh, Clark Drive there, is designed to accommodate a bridge. So right now, between 2025 and 2030, and I've been hearing more 2027 and into 2030 in that range is the sort of time frame for that bridge. So the building to be ready for that has already started. We're collecting DCCs. So so that's already, you know, that that's in the works. Is that going to be before or after the oceanfront's finished? It will be during. The oceanfront's going to be a, a long process. And so if this is sort of 2025 to 2030 in that time frame, it'll be during. Sort of probably after the park, but, you know, during the build out of oceanfront. Garibaldi Estates, VLA lands. Where where you land on that? Do we develop or do we kind of, we don't touch that? The VLA lands have already been amended uh, a number of times. People have subdivided already. So I, I think for me, again, it's what sort of neighborhood do we want there? Does the community want? There are some pretty um, active and vocal people with, with strong opinions and, and we had the smaller group sessions after you know the initial discussion fell a little flat, I guess I would say. In, the, in most of the discussions I was in, where it ended up was people who lived in that neighborhood, and this is my impression, were kind of of the opinion, like, I really wish, I like it the way it is, I wish it would stay this way, but I actually understand some of these benefits and I understand why we would accept some changes. And so, like, here's the things that I would like you to consider as we're thinking about changing this and, you know, I, I could maybe live with this and I get it. It's a little bit frustrating because the dialogue has been as if we are planning to take downtown carbon copy and, and make it garbage size, but that's never been the vision or plan or, or anything. Right now it is like we see the opportunity for more transit and, and density around commercial centers and there is a bit of a commercial center there. And it's a, it's a flat, low-lying area. So for seniors who want to live in place, who want to be able to subdivide their property, like they don't have income but they've got a lot of money in their land or their property so let them subdivide put it in a cottage they can have their garden 
age in place and have the money to do so, which they can't if they can't subdivide. If they can't subdivide, they have to sell and then they have to leave the community. You know, finishing the conversation with the neighborhood. So how do we do some row homes? How do we allow some subdivision for, you know, maybe it's aging in place where there's already apartments, where there's commercial area? Can we put some more density there? And how do we, do we, as we allow some sort of development do we protect agricultural areas and do those become public agricultural gardens or protected spaces? Where do we put the parks? How do we leverage? Because sidewalks are super expensive. So how do we make sure we have, you know, what's the trade-off, I guess, between some development where the development can pay for the sidewalks, where we can get the safer streets, the bike lanes, the sidewalks and everything, but it's not too much development for the community. So it's it's just finishing that that conversation. So are, we, are you looking at doing some, some density there? Is that something you would be opposed? Like a, you would be for density if it was in the, I guess, in the right situation? If, if everyone says, no, nah, I want to keep everything the way it is, you're just going to keep it the way it is. I think so far everyone isn't saying they want to keep it the way it is. I think they're they're saying here's where I want some stuff and here's where it's not okay and here's if it changes this is how I want it to change. So we haven't, you know, we've seen some initial feedback. I, I definitely have some ideas. Staff are trying to develop some rendering so people can actually kind of see like this is what we think we're hearing. Like, does this resonate with you? And and so I I don't have a like this is the outcome I want right now. Like I said, I, I definitely see the value in some density closer to transit and commercial hubs and so on, opportunity for seniors and so on. So I want to hear from the neighborhood and from the rest of the community because it's the whole community's feedback that that is important. Um, how do we make this work? We'll, we'll work from from that feedback. All right. Next up is Garibaldi at Squamish. We're still talking about it. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't quite understand that one. Um I think they are. They need to have a conversation with the the regional district at this point, without going down the whole rabbit hole. One of the things that has always challenged me a little bit when I talk to the proponents, and this was a few years ago now, so so maybe they've changed again. But you know, I talked to one person, and it was, well, it's going to be this great big resort, and it's going to be wonderful for the climate because everyone's going to come here instead of going all the way to Whistler and so then it'll alleviate some of those traffic problems between Squamish and Whistler and then other times you know in the same period I talked to someone else it's like oh oh no this is like a small local hill and it's not going to compete with Whistler and and so I don't really have a I guess it's one of the things that has frustrated me is it seems this multi-billion dollar project but what is it I, I couldn't feel like I could ever get a straight story and, and I have a number of concerns with both versions, but I don't really even know what exactly they're really wanting to do. So you're thinking they're very far off before we even consider extending our borders. I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, next up, LNG. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Still talking about that too. I have a strong perspective on, on this one. I do not believe it's inevitable. I, I believe that has been their tactic the, the whole way along so that people don't bother opposing it. But, um, you know, we'll see. They, they have significant things that they haven't resolved, like their worker housing. It, it's massive. The the Fortis pipeline puzzling me a little bit that more people aren't talking about it. So when Fortis came to, to speak to us in July, I was able to ask them, so we have a 10-inch line that's going down Finch and through our industrial park right now. Um, it's a distribution line, which means it's, sorry, a transmission line, which means it's very high pressure. And Fortis doesn't have another example in the province where there's a line at that pressure that close to density 
And so it's already a, an unusual circumstance and exposure for Squamish. What they're proposing is an additional line that's basically six times the volume. And so I have been pushing them for two years about give me your, your risk assessments and so on. And it's always a runaround and not getting an answer or saying, oh, we can't answer. And that doesn't make me feel confident. They say, oh, well, you know, we, we for security reasons, we can't disclose, you know, the exact pipeline route. And I said, well, I don't need to know the route. You actually already have yellow markers exactly where the line is right now. I don't need more detail than that. I want to know the risks to people, you know, at, at 100 meters, 200 meters from this proposed line because we are, and I've, oppose some of the zoning but we're zoning for a child care center like 10 meters from this new line like it, it doesn't make any sense to me so there's that whole piece plus the disruption to the community Fortis and wood fiber have been told for years and years and years we can't accommodate this workforce here you need to be thinking about long like housing that you use but you leave long term for the community and they haven't done that and and so they are now up against a wall where they need permits from us to do any sort of work camp don't have a good housing solution we are already struggling for workers in our community we don't have a problem where we need a bunch of jobs all of a sudden we actually need employees and you know what they're doing taking up housing it just exacerbates the problems we already have so you know my plan is to I'm just not one to give up, so I'm going to keep pushing the province to the degree I can. Of course, you know, where or if it becomes, actually becomes inevitable, um, you know, if we get into tax deals and that sort of thing, then you can be sure that I'm going to be a pretty strong advocate. They're not going to get a uh, a discount <laughs> from me. Crumpet Woods. Mm-hmm. What's going on in Crumpet Woods? You know, that one's progressing. I did not support... You know, for me, there was a lot of, uh, council had a lot of feedback. And so the the paraphrasing, the resolution that we passed was, hey, move on to the next stage. But when you bring it back, bring it back with all these things addressed. Where I was at was there was just too many things that I wasn't comfortable. I would like to see some of those addressed before moving to the next stage. So um, I didn't win that vote. I've walked through the site and I definitely understand the the attachment that people have and the reason they don't want to see it developed, but it is in the growth management boundary. We do have a housing crisis. I have to allow them some opportunity to try and come up with a design that addresses our concerns in terms of protecting the water, in terms of protecting the, you know, the natural habitats and so on. And if they can't get there, then, you know, that proposal won't fly with me but I think when it's in the growth management boundary I guess if we don't want that to be developed then that would be a discussion for the next OCP and to pull it out of the growth management boundary and logistically I'd have to see I'm not sure if we actually can do that or how that would work at this point in time but um, yeah for me what I've seen so far hasn't met the mark but I have to have an open mind because it is in the boundary we have identified that like all the community planning has put us there so high standard it's not quite there yet for me. So Chima. <laughs> it's outside the boundary. And, right. and so I don't think we, and, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I can't have a, a double standard. So that one is outside of the boundary. This is where we're talking about. I think it's a lot of new infrastructure, uh, maybe some new taxpayers, but a whole lot of new infrastructure for them. Even if it's close to the existing infrastructure, it's still a lot of new roads and sidewalks and so on. And even if the developer pays for it, we're paying for the maintenance, we're paying for the replacement costs. You know, I think we need to match our growth and our infrastructure, match our infrastructure and our spending to our actual growth. You know, when people are 
uh, frustrated by parking and traffic, the last thing you want is a development that absolutely almost everyone, if not everyone, is going to have a car or multiple cars. Like downtown, a lot more people can get by with without a car, like seniors and work from home and, and so on. But I think out um, when we start developing out there, you are really out of necessity bringing a whole lot more cars, which then puts that burden on everyone who's already living here. The topic of reconciliation, it's it's it really mm-hmm. is something that's top of mind right now, nationally, not just here locally, but nationally and rightfully so. I just wanted to broach, you know, your thoughts with respect to the Squamish Nation and the District of Squamish. They do not currently have an intergovernmental accord, i.e. there is no formal expectation or understanding of what they can expect of you and what the district can expect of them. Why is it that we can't get this done? There's only been one mayor who's actually been able to, to broach this. That was in the early 90s. We've not had one before. We haven't had one since. And why is it we can't get together on a services agreement with the, the Squamish Nation? They are such an integral part of everything we do here, given we're, we're situated on the traditional and unceded territory for the Squamish First Nation. Totally agree, but both those things are being worked on right now. The relationship has had ups and downs. We've worked really hard on the relationship, and it has survived the Squamish Nation Council's re-election. I think um, there's some trepidation on both sides about whether that relationship will survive this election, because right now it's really strong. And I think the um, the Eagle Viewing Dyke is a, is a good example where we have worked closely with Squamish Nation to try and address the reserve lands that have been taken by by our choices. And we uh, had a bit of a discussion yesterday about there's uh, government road is on reserve land. And so not directly related, but as part of the, the discussions, we are looking at how do we realign that road so it's not on, on reserve land. So 100% agree and all those things are in progress and, and I think they will continue. The The challenge from the, the nation side is, you know, they're doing like Sanok, which is a multi-billion dollar housing project and, you know, their ability and capacity to prioritize this. Uh, it's super important, but they've got other additional things that are super, super important. I, I think there has been some discussions and there's nothing in this budget, but it is something that I definitely want to re-examine if, if I'm re-elected is providing some staff capacity, uh, whether that is Squamish Nations people to work in our office, whether some of our staff works in their office. But I would expect that our next goal of the OCP is, is less of a, hey, we've done our consultation, here it is, send us your feedback and review. I would expect our sort of planners are working hand in hand on the next version of the OCP. And so that's kind of my version of, of where the relationship needs to head. All right. So we've been peppering you a bunch of questions now for, for a little bit here. This is, this is your chance now to give us your spiel. Give us my your spiel. Your yeah, spiel. You get your spiel. This is your shameless <laughs> plug, like plug Chris Pat and go. This is, this is your opportunity. Oh, this uh, is your, yeah, we're giving you a chance to practice for tonight's Sorka's all candidate <laughs> meeting, right? You, where you only get a minute and we're not going to hold you to a cowbell, but, um, do we have a cowbell? No, I, I actually do have should one. Be we one can bring, I can bring one. Let's start, let's start ringing cowbells at them. Yeah. That'd be hilarious. Well, uh, I didn't think I was doing a spiel tonight either. I'm going to have to <laughs> check oh, on that. Well, you get that minute, right? Like usually the candidates at the Zorka's all candidate meeting, right? You It's speed dating, but yeah. everybody gets a minute to, and then you cowbell it out and then you go off to your tables and, and start speed dating all the various outdoor recreation groups and 
Okay. Yeah. Eric, come on. I still have to check my thing to make sure. Around, Mr. Chris. <laughs> yeah, come but on. everyone's everyone everything's different now post COVID, man. <laughs> uh, but uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll sort of maybe just touch on what I used for the chief because I I have that in mind and just you know a little bit of 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 who I am. So I grew up in Southern Ontario. It was you know in, in the boonies. My parents bought a Panabo, which is like a cedar log home, put it on a train, shipped out, and they built it with my grandparents it like stacks up like lego and so i was living in a bc home even though i was in ontario and my parents the the ontario government had a they called them agreement for us but basically they give you free trees and so my parents planted trees in the front and backyard and i helped do it when i was three years old and so we had this tree farm and i feel like that's probably what planted the seed in my mind of bc and i see what you did there nice little pun there <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually that was accidental that's, uh, <laughs> but uh i guess the next thing sort of a, a big life thing i'm a, a type 1 diabetic and i got diabetes when i was six didn't really understand what was going on relevance of that here is i did see my parents and the doctors and nurses taking care of me and, and i think that did have an impact on me in, in sort of understanding how important it is to care for other people and, and how we we need help from other people sometimes you know, it's a challenge. It's it's always a, an extra battle or an obstacle. And I don't know. My dad's pretty stubborn, so maybe that's also where I get it. But I'm 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 not afraid to take on a big challenge. And you know, maybe that's why I'm running for council, despite all the attack ads and everything. I'm going for another round. But yeah, my partner and I moved here just before the Olympics. Uh, important for people to know. I think we've been renters the whole time we've been here. Uh, my partner's a teacher at Highlands Elementary. I work at a tech startup in town. And so, you know, we're fortunate to have good jobs, but it's it's still tough out there being a renter. Our landlord's circumstances changed a few months ago. We had to move. We didn't want to move, but we had to move. And um, so, you, you know, we're more secure than I know a lot of people are able to be at this point, but it's still... You know it's tough, and and so I, I I do have some sense of what what people are going through, and and that's another reason why I want to to run. Uh, picked out housing and affordability, livability and safety and security as my sort of pillars, but I'm looking at all that through the lens of equity, reconciliation, and climate change. Yeah, I thank uh, everyone for supporting Chris Pettingill for another term on Squamish Council. If people want to find you online and, and dive more into Mr. Chris Pettengill, where do they find you? Where, where do they, they, they get you at on the social media these days and otherwise? I think the easiest thing is go to chrisforsquamish.ca and then you can get to my Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn there. I'm not a social media, prolific social media person, so you, you get what you get, but uh, happy to uh, get in contact with anyone, have a coffee, uh, hosting some events I'm trying to do meet and greets and all that kind of thing so I'd love to then there's the door knocking yeah that'll start this weekend and get my flyers today I think so <laughs> yeah well listen Mr. Chris Pattengill uh counselor yes Pattengill thank you very much for joining us in the pod shed today and best of luck on your campaign here in the 2022 Squamish municipal election okay and thank you I, I kiss a little butt here but uh there aren't many opportunities like every opportunity so far it's very brief very focused so the ability to actually have a conversation and i'm not someone that likes to fit my ideas into short little bits so the i you know having these deeper conversations being able to explain the crazy things going on in my mind is is much appreciated so thank you cheers 
This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky Podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. 